Hello, thanks for listening to this Come Follow Me interfaith conversation from the John A. Woodso Foundation. The purpose of the Woodso Foundation is to inspire members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to engage in meaningful interfaith dialogue and outreach in order to strengthen our local communities around the world. It's our hope that by providing Latter-day Saints with an interfaith-oriented series and featuring members of the Jewish community, we can help educate Latter-day Saints about the rich history of Jewish scriptural interpretation and application. At the same time, we hope to model meaningful interfaith conversations and empower Latter-day Saints to do the same in their own communities. I'm Dr. Jacob Renneker, the Scholar-in-Residence for the John A. Woodso Foundation and the host for this Come Follow Me Interfaith Conversation series. Audience members who attend these live online events have a chance to submit their questions to our guests during the event. If you would like to join the conversation live, please visit www.widsofoundation.org to register for free. There, you can also find video replays and podcast links for this and all of our events. Now, on to the conversation. to introduce our guest and friend tonight, Dr. Tamar Frankiel. Tamar is the former president and provost of the Academy for Jewish Religion in California. She's authored several important books on Jewish spiritual life and religion, such as Loving Prayer, A Study Guide to Everyday Jewish Prayer, and The Voice of Sarah, Feminine Spirituality and Traditional Judaism. Tamar and her husband, Herschel, have lived in California for more than three decades, mostly in Los Angeles. Herschel, Tamar's husband, was born in Poland and survived the Holocaust as a child hidden by a Polish family. Together, Tamar and Herschel have five children and 14 grandchildren who live everywhere from Los Angeles to Chicago to Jerusalem to London and to Norfolk, Virginia. And just kind of on a personal note, Tamar is a great person. She's also, I mentioned, a member of the Latter-day Saint Jewish Academic Dialogue Project. So I've gotten to know her pretty well over the past several years. And she's just incredibly generous, kind, and makes you feel smarter and better than you actually are. So Tamar, I'm glad to spend some time with you tonight. First off, something I thought would be helpful for our Latter-day Saints, what sort of things do you wish that Christians, kind of in general, Latter-day Saints being part of the Christian tradition, what would you hope that Christians would understand better about the way that their Jewish neighbors approach interpreting scripture in general? Thank you, Jacob, for that beautiful introduction. And it's wonderful to be here with you tonight. Looking forward to this as a conversation. Yes, I think one of the things that sometimes difficult for Christians to understand, especially coming from a very authoritative tradition, which has a descended tradition through generations and generations, and where certain people rise up as authorities. Because on the surface, if you look at Jewish tradition, it seems to be the same. There are important biblical commentators. There are schools that teach the interpretation of the Hebrew Bible. But once you get involved in it, you realize it actually has a much more intimate, conversational almost character to the study of scripture. 
the Hebrew Bible is the word of God transmitted first through Moses and then through other prophets and holy writers. And yet at the same time, it is from the beginning, from very early on in Judaism, conceived of as a conversation between the generations that has to evolve in a certain sense. It has limitations and structures that control that evolution. And certainly the respect for real scholars of the tradition where, you know, overrides some of the other things that people might just come up with in this conversation. But there really is an effort to make clear that the text is speaking to us personally, and we have to come personally to it and as communities come to it and find a way to understand it that's in our language and our time, even though it's from the ancient, from the wisest sources that we know. And then there's a whole range of literature that evolves out of that. And that's what a lot of Christians don't realize is there's just tomes and tomes and tomes of commentaries on the Torah that people can bring into the conversation. Excellent. So you mentioned and you used the term Hebrew Bible, and I think that'd be helpful for our audience, right? So Christians have an Old Testament because there's a New Testament, right? So Jesus, apostles, writings of apostles constitute the New Testament and also accept as uh, you know authoritative the Old Testament. But for the Jewish community who does not accept as canonical, you know, as authoritative, these writings of the life and teachings of Jesus and Jesus's disciples, it's just the Torah, the Bible, right? So Hebrew Bible. So if we use that term tonight, Hebrew Bible, Hebrew Bible equals Old Testament, essentially. So that is very, very helpful and interesting about that idea of kind of scripture being a conversation or interpretation being kind of a conversation and a necessary conversation or an expected conversation. I really like that idea. And so is it safe to say then that whereas in some Christian communities that there are interpretation of this particular scripture, and that might be similar to community in different Christian congregations, would that be the same if you go to a different synagogue? How similar will some of these interpretations or traditions of interpretation, how similar would those be? If you could speak to that for just a second. Widely, widely different in style, and usually with certain common threads of substance, I guess is the way. It's like a tree, you know, there's a trunk, Everybody recognizes the trunk, but the branches can go many different directions. And I'll give some examples of that in the passages that we're dealing with tonight. But there is, for example, it's expected that someone who knows Hebrew is going to be more authoritative than someone who's working only from an English translation. It's expected that for the Hebrew Bible, the prime commentator that everyone should look at first is a guy from the 11th century known as Rashi, that's acronym, we use acronyms for names, uh, Rabbi Shlobo ben Isaac, who lived in France. Why? Because he was a master of the Talmud, which is a whole body of legal commentary. He was a master of all the books of the Bible, and he taught five-year-olds. So, you know, it's like Rashi. Christians usually haven't heard of Rashi, but nobody would think about doing a serious investigation of a piece of Bible without looking at what Rashi says, and then all the people who argue with him. Great. And I like, yeah, the people who argue, right? So the conversation that's happening sometimes can get a bit heated <laughs> between different interpreters of scripture. And that's, yeah, I like that. That's more entertaining and engaging <laughs> as a reader. So that, 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 I think that's some helpful background information. Some of these things might come up as, as, as we go along, but let's let's go ahead and focus on Genesis 2 to 3, the, the story of the Garden of Eden. So coming from the creation story in Genesis 1, now to kind of focusing on Genesis 2 and 3 and what's happening in Eden. 
What are some of your favorite Jewish interpreters from some of these different interpretive traditions or interpreters? But what are some that you appreciate or that you find most interesting from that wealth of interpretive tradition? Right. One thing, you know, there's supposed to be a kind of basic plain meaning level of most of what we read in the Torah. It's the plain meaning of the law sometimes, or the plain meaning of the story, this happens. But it's clear from the commentaries on Genesis 2 and 3 that this is not your normal story. <laughs> this story does not happen according to the normal laws of nature. This story is, is on some other level. And that's one of the things that makes it fascinating, but it also means that one must do interpretation. For example, the fact that Adam and Eve are born adults. I mean, they're adults. They don't have, they were never babies. They don't have a family. They don't have parents. The Talmud says they were 20 years old, as if 20 years old when they were created. How were they created? Were they created first Adam and then Eve? But there's also an interpretation that says they were actually created together. There's a story in the, in the Talmud I love because it kind of brings very vividly to life both the impossibility and the intensity of this, which says Adam and Eve's first day on earth is divided into 12 hours. That is the daytime hours. In the first hour, Adam's clay is heaped up. In the second, he becomes an inert mass. In the third, his limbs extend. In the fourth, he is infused with the soul. In the fifth, he stands in his feet. In the sixth, he gives names to all of creation. In the seventh, Eve becomes his mate. And in the eighth, they ascended into the bed as two and descended as four, namely Cain and Abel were born. <laughs> in the ninth, he was commanded not to eat of the tree. In the 10th, he went astray. In the 11th, he was judged. And then the 12th, he was expelled and departed. <laughs> so just that, oh yeah, this was all going on in the space of like half of a 24-hour day, literally or, or figuratively. Either way, it's a very intense story. The other piece that I wanted to mention is that there's a discussion about what it means when it says Eve was created from one of Adam's ribs. One opinion holds that it didn't mean rib, but it meant side like a wall, and that actually this was an androgynous being, either side to side or back to back, and that it wasn't so much taking a piece of Adam and then forming the woman from him, but of separating an originally androgynous being so they could turn face to face, which is, I like that one. That's great. Yeah. You, so you, mentioned, you mentioned the the term Talmud. And so I think maybe that might be helpful for our audience to, to define what that is, how that is different from the text of the Hebrew mm -hmm. Bible itself and uh, Midrash. Maybe if you could differentiate a couple of those for us, that might be helpful kind of moving forward. Yes. Thanks for asking. You have the Bible, which there's the Torah, which is just the first five books of the Bible, the Torah of Moses. And then there's all those scriptures, which you know from the Old Testament. And then after the destruction of of the temple in Jerusalem, the rabbis, as they came to be called, they were beginning to be called rabbis then, but the rabbis of the next several generations gathered together all the oral traditions that they could remember, and perhaps some of them had written down pieces of, and they gathered them into, first of all, a body of law called the Mishnah, and then commentaries on that. It was over generations took them. The Mishnah was completed around the year 200, CE, and then for another three to four centuries, two to three centuries at least, the rabbis added more and more commentaries. That became the Talmud. And there's actually two versions of the Talmud, one from the Babylonian community, one from the Jerusalem 
or Palestinian community of Jews. And those are what are called the Talmud. Midrash is yet another collection of writings. Some of the stories that are in the Midrash also appear in Talmud, but it's another voluminous collection of writings that are mainly stories and homilies. They're more like moral interpretations and explanations of the stories in the Bible. They don't usually have a legal significance like the Talmud does. And when you use the term legal or legally, what does that mean in Jewish life in general? All those rules that Jews have to <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. which also get discussed over centuries a lot. Basically, the interpretations of the legal portions of the Hebrew Bible, which are mostly in the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, and then an overview and a few more new ones in Deuteronomy. How do you apply those in life? Those are the questions that the Mishnah and then the Talmud ask. Excellent. Good. I think that's very helpful for our audience. Thanks for that. So we have a few different things. You mentioned Adam's incredibly full day of action there. That was from the Talmud? That is from, yes, the Talmud, the book Tractate Sanhedrin. Yes. Okay. Okay. And then the other one that was talking about that's woman uh, being created the Midrash together. about the construction of Adam's body and how that happens. There are several different traditions about this, but it's Midrashic. Okay. Great. Excellent. So I think yeah, that idea that you, you mentioned that uh, interpretation that you like, right? That the back to back and then like separated so that they could then be face to face in being separated. What is it about that interpretation that does something for you? It, again, is about the conversation, whether if people are theoretically joined side to side, they can, you know, push something together, they can do certain things with their hands together. If they're joined back to back, it becomes a little more difficult <laughs> to do things together. I don't know what that would be like. But the idea that there was originally a oneness and then by separating, it made a different kind of relationship possible, a two-ness, uh, knowing of each other, facing, meaning that the face is where we interpret most of what another person has to say. So it has to do with that conversation and that, that intimacy and equality. I don't mean that in a legal sense, but just the sense of facing another person, recognizing, acknowledging another person. I like that. And that's something that I think that in Christian circles in general, that you can't, you, that you can tease some of that out looking you know, at the language of Genesis a bit, but that I think the the default and looking at the relationship of Adam and Eve in Christianity in general has been, you know, Adam is created first and then Eve is created second. And then Adam is put in some you know authoritative position over Eve. And that's kind of, so it's, it's seen as a hierarchy sometimes of that relationship. That's one of the things I like about that conceptual, looking at this as a story, kind of using your imagination to step into Eden, that that idea of man and woman being part of a whole and then separating and needing to face each other to regain that wholeness. That's something that I find really compelling and that that wholeness is found in conversation, right? They're not just kind of smashing back together again and have four arms and four legs to become a different, you know, a creature. They're not trying to regain that original state or something different, but they're unique, separate individuals who are in conversation with each other. And I think that's a great way to see Eden. And then looking at, if you're looking at Eden as the template for 
life in general or how life, ideal life can be, that that's, I think, a great lesson to pull out that Christians can definitely learn from. So I really, I really like that. It's even implied in that phrase, God created a helpmate. Ezra Konegba is the Hebrew, if I have it exactly right. And Ezra means helpmate, but Konegba means opposite him. So that sense of facing and, and one of the rabbis in the Talmud says, yes, she'll be his helper, but if he does the wrong thing, she's going to tell him, right? She's going to be the one who corrects him. And so there's this allowance for a relationship that is not necessarily hierarchical, although there are Jewish commentators who do that too. And there are Jewish commentators and Midrashic stories that talk about the problems with the woman, you know, the woman problem <laughs> from a masculine point of view, basically. And also there are moralistic interpretations, you know, what Eve did wrong and what Eve did right, you know, then this is how women should behave or should not behave. That does come up too. One thing that is not prominent, however, is the idea of the woman as a sexual temptress not in most of the standard commentaries. There's a kind of uh, offbeat or off a tangent that goes off to the side about there was really another Eve and she was really awful. But the woman is not so much the temptress in that because of her body or because of her physicality or her sexuality. She does tempt Adam. She offers him the same fruit she ate, but doesn't have that other connotation. So that's interesting difference. Good. So with Genesis, again, Eden and what's happening there, are there other additional interpretations that you've found to be enlightening or, or interesting? And in particular, things that you don't recognize as much as being interpretive focuses for general Christian readings of Genesis? Well, one of the themes that gets picked up and amplified in Jewish history is that this was the first exile. I mean, Jewish history has emphasized finding one's home and being exiled again over and over and over, whether it's being taken down from Abraham's wandering and then later Jacob and his family being taken down to Egypt and then being in slavery and then going back home and searching for the homeland, all that. And so this is about the first exile and the sins that are presented here in this story are kind of archetypal, not so much about personal sins, although there are certain things you can draw out about obedience and how you understand instructions and that sort of thing. But for some reason, we had to go out, you know, and whether it's simply because of a flaw in human nature or rebellion against God, or maybe it was about that tree of knowledge, you know, that we had to somehow eat of the tree of knowledge, but then we couldn't be in the garden in innocence anymore. I like that exile, seeing the Garden of Eden as, you know, kind of the first or original exile and why that happens. And to see that happening repeatedly. And obviously that idea is one that resonates strongly with the Jewish community because of, you know, a few different points in, in, in Jewish history. Yeah, that's powerful. Seeing it, kind of interpreting it as a way of seeing Adam and Eve and their expulsion from Eden as a type of exile 
original exile, seeing that I think can be helpful and help different things to come up in the story that we don't typically pay attention to if we're looking at it just as this is the story of something that happened to two specific people and their lives, but then looking at it larger about how it kind of foreshadows in a sense, the history of humanity and the Jewish people, right? The covenant people of God and their experiences and what continues to happen with having to leave again, again, and again, but then yet having some tether to God, right? Something original someplace, trying to come back and back and back again. Yeah, I really like that. First of all, the Latter-day Saint tradition can connect to that too, the sense of exile and seeking the home, right? But also that's where Shabbat comes in because Shabbat is like coming back to Eden one day a week. Um, yeah, yeah. So talk a little bit more about that. I mean, that's really Genesis 1 <laughs> rather than 2 and 3, because part of the Shabbat home liturgy is actually in the description of the seventh day. But that this day is a day in time, which is like the Garden of Eden in space and in the archetypal history, the ancient, ancient memories of home. So it's in the liturgy. And there's a particular, you asked, is there any little piece of it that connects to specific liturgical practices. And besides the verses, which we say over the wine on Friday night, there's a little thing at the end of Shabbat. A ceremony is called Havdalah, which means to make a distinction between the Sabbath and the other six days of the week. We have wine and we light a candle, which is light is also symbolic of the garden, but it's also how now we are making fire again. We are back coming into the week and we smell spices which also reminds us of how the apple on the tree smelled and tasted good. But then when the candles are lit, we look at our fingernails. Everyone just goes like this, holding them under the light of the candle. And everybody does it. <laughs> and I, I just thought, okay, it's just easy to look at your fingernails, right? It turns out that there's an interpretation in the Midrash that the cuticles of your fingernails, the little light, the moons, as we called them when I was young, actually are a memory of the skin that Adam and Eve had before they were exiled, exiled from the garden. What? <laughs> but that's, you know, that's like, you really are remembering something deeper and it's engraved in your fingernails somehow. Mm. Interesting. That's really interesting. I like, I really like, yeah, that, that idea. And I think it does, you know, ties to Genesis one, you know, the seventh day of creation, the rest that this return to that kind of crowning act of creation, right? God resting, everything being good and kind of completed in terms of the initial creation that the Sabbath can be seen as a return to that time, right? A return to Eden. And that's an image that I, that I find really powerful. I think that isn't typically how Latter-day Saints see, see the Sabbath day in a lot of different terms, but usually we don't look at Eden kind of like exiled, you know, Adam and Eve being thrown out of the garden the time before that. We don't connect Sabbath and our day of you know rest and rejuvenation and focusing on God, we don't usually connect that with Eden. But I think that's something that's definitely worth thinking about for Latter-day Saints and viewing connections there and, and as a way to perhaps enrich their weekly Sabbath day experience, thinking about relations to Eden. So that's great. Thanks for bringing that up. I really like that. The rabbis also say that if Adam and Eve had not had just been able to wait a couple more hours and wait until the Sabbath came in, then they would have been given the fruit of the tree of knowledge. Mm, that's interesting. That's yeah. really 
Speaking of being expelled from the garden, what about the serpent? So serpent in Jewish tradition and in, in kind of general Christian tradition, there's you know kind of one-to-one correspondence between the serpent and the figure Christians call Satan, right? Kind of adversary of figure set against God. So in Jewish tradition, how does our the Jewish interpretive tradition handle the serpent and what the serpent's doing there? Right. It does end up being similar to the Satan, but there's a few little interesting things that come out in the Midrash. One is that God, he was really upset with the snake because he had planned to make him king over all the beasts. He was the smartest, as we are told. And you notice he was cursed by being forced to lie on his belly so that the Midrashic tradition says that he was actually standing up and walking around. It wasn't like the snake as we know him now at all. So he was this kind of larger than life figure who somehow had become both arrogant, you know, an animal who had become arrogant, cunning, and also he was the one who was the sexual tempter. He had a desire for Eve. That's very clear in many of the Midrashic stories about the serpent. So in order to win over Eve, he created this whole scenario. It really is something gone wrong (laughs) through arrogance and desire. The serpent represents it more than Adam and Eve do, who basically just affected by the fruit. Good. So with that, then the serpent in terms of what happens with the serpent. So that makes sense with the serpent is walking around on two feet and then is cursed to crawl on the belly. Then there's kind of that transformation, kind of a change in state from upright mobile to something that's lower and limited. So that is a, a sort of you know punishment, a, lo- a, low, a lowering of state from to another. An enmity between the snake and humans. Yeah, yeah. Those curses are are interesting also. I mean, they seem to be like, you want to understand why human life is so difficult. Look at what's difficult for the woman. Look at what's difficult for the man. These came from this original misunderstanding and disobedience in the garden, but also the animal. There was an alienation between humans and animals that didn't need to happen. And the earth. I mean, Adam is curses to work very hard and he's only going to have thistles and, you know, it's not going to be easy. I don't think there's any question in traditional Judaism, there is an, a sense of the reality of evil, sometimes personified in Satan, sometimes a fallen angel type, sometimes in people who seem to be hopelessly caught in evil. Great. We have lots of questions here from our audience, which I'm excited about. One of them that I think relates to specifically what we talked about with the general interpretation of the Garden of Eden in Jewish tradition. One of our audience members asked if the Jewish community considers the Garden of Eden as a literal garden, or is it just you know strictly an allegory or a metaphor for the way things started with people? How is that typically dealt with in the Jewish community? You know, as a historian, I see literalism as an invention of the modern world. (laughs) I don't think the distinctions that we make between literal and figurative or literal and philosophical, I don't think those distinctions apply in the same way, although we use the words sometimes, to the ancient world, to the classical world, certainly to the rabbinic world. There's a respect for what actually happened. But unless you're in the business of deciding on a law and a consequence or a law and a permission, 
it's not so important. So it can be figurative, it can be literal. I like the word archetypal, even though it has a kind of psychological tone because of Jungian psychology and so forth. But the idea that there's, there's an ancient memory here, but it's not a literal memory. It's a memory of our essential natures and things that distort our essential natures. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So the distinction between literal and figurative isn't as distinct, you think, at least in the minds of the early interpreters and even the people who are writing the story in Genesis 2 and 3. Is that, is that what you're saying? Yeah, it's like to focus on that distinction would be to miss something important. Let's talk about Eve for a moment. Does the Jewish tradition, how does the Jewish tradition see Eve? Is Do they see Eve as being a figure who was wise? I know in the general Christian tradition, sometimes Eve is seen as being, you know, foolish and deceived word that, you know, that Paul uses. So how does Jewish generally interpret Eve's character and, you know, person in the garden? She's a seeker of wisdom. When the serpent tells her that she won't die, she later says, I was told not to touch the fruit, but that wasn't true. God told them just not to eat the fruit. She's like, in fact, the rabbis say she added on a prohibition that wasn't there. She knew she had to be careful. And yet when she saw what the serpent pointed out, that it's beautiful, it's good, she saw it was true. What she didn't know and couldn't know, and in fact, the story seems to be set up to help us recognize this, is that once you eat that fruit, once you cross that boundary and want to seek the inner knowledge of what's good, you will also encounter what's evil. Before then, I don't think the word ra, evil, appears except in reference to that tree, only the word good. Everything is good. When God created it, it was good. It was good. It was good. But in that tree was hidden this other piece. Let's talk about those two trees. I had another question about the trees. Um, how are those two trees then interpreted generally as what you've seen from what you've read from Jewish uh, interpreters? Talk to us a bit about how Jewish tradition handles those. It's very confusing because <laughs> first we're told there's just one tree, right? That they can't eat. And then after they eat that one, we're told, oh, now if they go and eat that other tree, <laughs> they're going to live forever. So it's interesting in some Jewish art, the two trees are portrayed as intertwined, but it actually seems to be like one has to come before the other. And that's what, that's what I understand from the commentaries. Once you cross that boundary of the knowledge of good and evil, then there's also a boundary that you cannot cross, at least in this life. It's got to be in a further life. That's what I think the live forever means. But it's a very difficult thing to interpret. I'm not sure I'm giving a very good explanation of that. So it's something that there's widely differing opinions in the Jewish interpretive I tradition. I, I guess I would say I haven't found a satisfactory explanation. Of okay. That. Okay. One of the things that you mentioned was the time of Eden, that the Midrash that you mentioned about the 12 hours of the day and what happened within that. One of the things that you mentioned there was Cain and Abel being right. part of that on an hour that was previous to the last hour when Adam and Eve were uh, expelled from the garden. One of the audience members was asking if they heard that correctly. 
That's what I read. I was quoting directly from the, the text in the Talmud in English when I read that. But, you know, it's different from what we assume from just the straight reading of those chapters. So then in that tradition, then that there's a strand of Jewish tradition that would say that Adam and Eve may have had children before actually leaving Eden. Is that fair to say? Mm -hmm. That's no. what I understand from that. You know, still babies, but... Yeah, born at 20, or that might have been <laughs> why... Eve's childbirth was said to be painful. I could see that being the case. So yeah, that, that is really interesting. Again, on this topic of time, there were 12 hours delineated. One of our audience members is asking if there's some you know, significance in some of those numbers. So 12 hours for the day, you know, daytime hours, nighttime hours. At what point does that become significant? I think it's just the culture of the, I mean, rabbinic culture, which was part of ancient Roman culture. There's in the biblical materials, there's the dawn and sunset and midday, but I don't know when the 24 hours became significant. So that's a probably rabbinic addition. As far as the set, 24 hours and seven days and all that, traditional Jews have latched on to all the anti-evolutionary readings that have come mostly from Christians out of an anxiety that their own tradition might be corrupted by evolutionary thinking. But again, I don't think the ancient scholars were very worried about that. Thank you. I thought there was a kind of quick follow-up question to the possibility of Cain and Abel being born in Eden or children in Eden prior to having to leave. The question is, is there an understanding as in that sense why children who might not have partaken of the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, why they were also expelled from the garden? Is that something that that particular interpretation teases out or does it, is that not a question that seems to concern it doesn't seem to be picked up by the main line of tradition. Women, I mean, children are considered innocent in the sense of unable to discriminate between good and evil until they're 12 for girls and 13 for boys. But that particular piece isn't linked to that so far as I know. Another question here that relates to something that you mentioned about the garden and the relationship of humanity to the garden and humanity to the animals. The question here is to what degree do the Jewish community read a duty of earth care or environmentalism in the creation and the garden of Eden story, at least in your, in, in your personal experience and from what you've read? There's clearly hints of concern about some of the same issues, not necessarily saying that they're coming from the same place as we come as modern people. But first of all, Adam and Eve were given permission to eat vegetables, not meat. Doesn't seem like meat eating was even brought up until after Noah. There's the idea of tending the garden is the beginning of Genesis 2, has a different flavor than you know, you're going to have to wrestle with the earth to get food out of it, to, to fight those thistles and so forth. So there's a sense of a wholeness, as I said before, that was once there. And then certain things in Jewish law come out much later, like not taking fruit of the trees until the fourth year and not taking the babies from the nest of a mother bird unless she's gone and things like that. There are lots of little things about caring for animals, caring for the earth, but they don't 
amount in themselves to a full-fledged environmental program or anything. But they're certainly, you know, we're supposed to love the earth just as Adam and Eve loved the garden. There's no hint that they had to do anything else except show up and take care of us. Good. And that was a topic that the mentioned that Tamar, part of the Latter-day Saint Jewish Academic Dialogue Project, the most recent gathering for that talked about environmentalism, care for the you know, stewardship over the earth as part of that. And so I know, you know Tamar has read a lot in that and had some great thoughts. And I wish we had more time to draw from some of that. So what you're saying is there's no systematic program for how the Jewish community should approach environment or you know, earth care, rather there's individual parts of how to do that. Individual parts like, for example, the Levites lived in cities and weren't given land, but there was a provision that they had to have gardens, essentially land around them. They couldn't, I think it was inconceivable for people in earlier ages not to have some connection to the land, but they were often, often struggling with it too, struggling to rest a living from farming and so forth. So just a very different relationship than we have today because of our, our technology, which is amazing and miraculous. And we wouldn't be here doing this if it weren't for our technology, but it's brought in a lot of things that we have to deal with in a different way now. Okay, so as we're getting close to the end here, something I think relating to a question that one of the audience members has, I kind of would love to tie this into you personally and your reading the Garden of Eden story. So one of the audience members asked, what are some of the advantages of reading the story of the Garden of Eden in Hebrew versus in English translation, if there are things, ideas that kind of come across more in Hebrew than in English? And kind of along with that, I'd love to also kind of maybe pair that with how this story has impacted you, what your kind of personal devotional approach to the Garden of Eden has been something you found meaningful in that. The Hebrew language is full of nuances, but it's also often you find in the Bible puns, and there's a significant pun, so to speak, a homophone, I guess. There are two words that are pronounced or. One is the word for light, and the one for skin is or, but one is spelled with an aleph and the other with an ayin. Aleph and ayin are both silent vowels. So after Adam and Eve realize what has happened to them, they go and make themselves garments of fig leaves. But then it says, God made them garments of skin, using the word for skin, but it can also be transposed into the word for light, hinting that originally they had garments of light, and now they have only garments of skin, only for protection. The inner light has been dimmed. So it's interpretations like that that touch me very much. And reading in Hebrew, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I can read the Hebrew, but I also read commentaries that tell me what, what I'm reading, tell me alternative interpretations. So it really is much, much richer with just a little knowledge of Hebrew even. I will say that. And also, I'll say, just in terms of the devotional aspect, our Rosh Hashanah, our new year, is said to be the day of the creation of Adam and Eve. There were six days, and then there was, on that last day, the sixth day, that was Rosh Hashanah. So every Rosh Hashanah, I also like to study the story of Adam and Eve. I would love to keep talking with you and hearing more from you, but thank you so much for spending the time with us and our audience this evening. This has been great. just wanted to let everyone know here that... 
you can rewatch this event, study it on the WITSO Foundation's YouTube channel. You can find information for those on the WITSO Foundation's website, www.widsofoundation.org. We're excited. Again, this is kind of kicking off this entire series here with people like uh, Tamar. You kind of got a, a sense for the, the sort of friends that we have that we're excited to talk with. Our next conversation is going to be in uh, a few weeks. We'll be discussing the sacrifice of Isaac in Genesis chapter 22 with Rabbi Mark Diamond, who's a good friend of Tamar's and ours at the Woodso Foundation. Uh, they're both part of the Latter-day Saint Jewish Academic Dialogue Project, kind of the original team that kind of started that whole thing. Again, thank you for joining us and please have a safe and happy new year. Thanks. Thanks for joining us for this Come Follow Me interfaith conversation. The John A. Woodso Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization and is entirely funded by our generous audience members. So, if you like what we're doing here and find it valuable, please consider making a tax-deductible donation at www.widsofoundation.org forward slash donate.